Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. This is um, a 25-year look across the autism spectrum, um, led by myself, Kelly Birmingham. I am a BCBA, and i am been a BCBA nearly 20 years now. And as always, I'm with my partner in crime, Jen Lucero, mother to Dylan and Ethan. Hi, Jen. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Good morning. So we have a heavy topic today. Whew. Um, our podcast is designed to um, go through topics related to autism and family systems and autism from a parent perspective and a BCBA perspective, hoping to sort of bridge the gap um, across with those two groups. I know that as a BCBA, I've learned a lot in my 25 plus year career, things I'd never learned in school in my program about understanding a parent perspective. And I always say you don't have to be a parent to be a good BCBA, but you do have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a family raising a child with autism to be the best kind of BCBA. So um, we have a wonderful guest today, Jen. We have Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Hi. Um, Kelly, I met you on LinkedIn and through our mutual good friend, Mandy Ralston, who everyone in the world knows and loves. And Kelly, you are a mom to three children and a fierce advocate in Louisville, Kentucky, in the autism spectrum world. Will you take like two minutes and tell our audience about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm a parent of three kids, like you said, uh, I had two boys on the spectrum. My 20-year-old, my oldest son, uh, is nonverbal, more profoundly autistic, very dependent on 24-7 supervision and care. He can't communicate any of his feelings or basic needs. Um, his only means to communicate is really his body language or meltdowns. Um, and he can become very violent when he's upset, but he can also be a super sweet, you know, really calm, laid-back person. His biggest trigger in our household is my 11-year-old son, who is also on the spectrum, but, you know, another side of it. He's verbal, he's loud, he's aggressive, he has, you know, OCD, ADHD, pathological demand avoidance, he has to control his environment, or he has, you know, raging meltdowns, which is a catalyst for my older son to have his meltdowns. So, you know, Oof. in a nutshell, <laughs> they have been, you know, the focus of my, my life for about 13, 14 years now. Mm -hmm. um, I used to work in behavioral health. I've been a social worker. I have a background in insurance, both claims and, you know, prior auths, things like that. Um, but I've been homeschooling my oldest since 2009 and then homeschooling my youngest now because neither really could thrive in the school environment, either private or public, just due to one needing to withdraw and become overwhelmed and the other one needing to just take over and control the environment and getting fixated and perseverating on things that had nothing to do with learning. So they've been homeschooled and in behavior therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, mm -hmm. you know, special diets, you know, on meds, off meds, you know, jumping yeah. through the groups, the paperwork, the therapies, that's kind of been life for a long time now. Um, so I do try to spend some time feeling like I'm being proactive by advocating where I can. Yeah. Um, I currently recently just joined a task force here in Louisville of parents who are trying to create more housing options here in the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Just at the very beginning of our brainstorming meetings of what we need to do next. But, you know, that's giving awesome. me hope for the future that's that my great. boys someday have a safe, enriching place to live when mm -hmm. I'm no longer to do all this. So that is our, our life in a nutshell. 
Well, we are so glad to have you because you are a force of nature, clearly. And you have a perspective from with three children, right? Jen has Dylan and Ethan. And so we're going to tackle, I'm going to be referencing today the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, right? And I'm talking about grief because I'm going to talk about grief and guilt, right? Raising a child on the autism spectrum. Now, it doesn't mean every family goes through this, but research indicates that a lot of families upon receiving a diagnosis of autism, go through these stages of grief. And the stages are one, denial, two, anger, three, bargaining, four, depression, and five, acceptance, okay? So let's talk about real quick, and we're gonna try to do this in a short podcast. We'll probably have to you know, go back through and talk about it, but let's talk about, um, Jen, I'll ask you real first, and then uh, Kelly, Get your child gets a diagnosis of autism, anger, guilt. Where are you at? Um, at first, I think for me it was, um, I don't know if it was anger, guilt. Yeah, it, it definitely was grief. Um, yeah. you know, I think I I knew for about two years, and I was trying to get a diagnosis, and I couldn't. Um, and then um, luckily we found the right person and um, we had started therapy already. Um, but, you know, there was, I guess, a little bit of guilt that I couldn't get him diagnosed for two years when I was pursuing it. Um, but um, it's it's come a long way. I remember, even though I knew um, he was hearing it, um, you know, and hearing it is so profound. Um, you know, is like, you know, scraping up off the floor, you know, and I just, I, I felt like I got hit in the head with a shovel and I had like this flash of like, you know, what is his life and my life, you know, and my other son's life going to be like, like forever moving forward. So that was my immediate reaction. I think you called me right after that. That's what yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly. I mean, you went through it twice. Yeah, we had a similar situation uh, with our first, my oldest. You know, we knew we knew he had autism long before we actually got a diagnosis. You know, in the meantime, we had had a pediatrician literally say, you know, he doesn't strike me as an autistic child. We had a speech therapist say that's not autism because he had like, you know, waved by to her. So you were you were being misled. And I, mm -hmm. I always tell people, I've got to trust your gut trust your gut, you know, when something's not right with your child. And this goes on until they're adults like ours are now. Um, but the initial feeling of the diagnosis is definitely, I think it's kind of a disbelief type of, of sadness. And there's, a, there's something people don't really talk about much, I think, in this realm is that when your child is diagnosed with something like this, it feels like a life sentence. Mm -hmm. You know there's a cure, and you know they're gonna probably need you the rest of your life. And it, it isn't just their life that has been impacted, but you instantly know my life is forever changed. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't like, and I don't mean to discredit. I, I I always hesitate to go down this path of thought because people, I don't want to insult anyone. But if you hear that your child has been, you know, maybe they're blind or they're deaf or something, you feel like there's stuff that can be done. It's awful. It's tragic but you feel like there's stuff to be done. When you're diagnosed with autism, there is, there's nothing, there's no answers. It's, yeah. it's, you know, incurable, best of luck to you. 
there's no one set of, well, just follow ABC and XYZ mm-hmm. and your mm-hmm. child will be talking by the age of five or they'll be living independently when they're 18. There's no answers and there's nothing to cling to. It's a very lost feeling of, you know, it's a different type of grief because you also feel so helpless, so helpless. And, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, a terminal diagnosis um, like those battling terminal diseases. And it, it, it's a different type of grief. It's a very unsettling, scary path because you have no idea where you're going, but you have this desperate feeling to do something. I got to get started doing something to help mm-hmm. them. What is that? You know, it's so many people on the chat rooms and Facebook, you know, they're like, we were diagnosed this week. What do I do? And yeah. You feel almost an anxiety of, I don't even know what to tell them because each child is so different. You're just going to dive in and you're trying a gluten-free diet. You're trying all these supplements. You're, yep. you know, you're reaching out for therapists and they say, you need 40 hours a week of behavior therapy. And you're like, yep. well, how do we afford that? You know, and you're just overwhelmed. So you're dealing with this grief, but also this extreme panic and overwhelmed feeling. I think that it subsides once you just kind of like any anxiety, if you just get started, just get started doing something, get some answers, get some guidance from other parents, talk to other people in the same boat. So you realize you're not alone, helps manage that, that grief and that panic. Um, and then once you kind of get started on the path of doing something, you start to feel a little better and acceptance starts to come with time, but it just takes time. Like any grieving process, it takes time. Mm-hmm. And you be active, keep yourself active during the grieving process. The acceptance will come later. There's always the underlying sadness that you can't change it. Um, you know, by the time uh, my oldest son was about nine and a half, almost 10 when my second son came along and there definitely was a second layer of like surely this can't happen twice there's no way the denial the denial was really big I think the second time around this can't happen twice and talk about guilt you know there's all kinds of guilt that's definitely another whole other conversation to have someday um wait hold on for a second guilt because you had a second child on the autism spectrum yeah yeah that's that's when I'd already had a second child. I had my daughter. She's perfectly fine. She was mm-hmm. like, it's an easy kid. She's amazing. You know, she's uh, perfectly normal, health, you know, healthy, happy. Um, and then when my third child came along, when I went, you know, when we found out it was a boy, uh-huh. you're already concerned. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, percentages just went up, but surely, surely that won't happen again. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, he came along, he's healthy. He's a strong, healthy little baby boy. But man, we were like watching him like with a microscope, you yeah. know, his entire development. And I think the when he was in his bouncy seat at about maybe, I may say seven, eight months old, and he was bouncing and kicking his legs, kicking his legs in his bouncy seat. Well, that's just what babies do, right? But my husband and I were both like, is he stemming? You know, mm-hmm. like, is that autism? Right now we're, now we're looking for it, you know, yeah. but sure enough, it, you know, his, he didn't develop gestures. He didn't develop speech when he should, he was delayed. He did develop it. He's more high functioning cognitively and communicative than my older son, but it was there. And we saw it very early on. And again, trusted our gut, just trusted our gut. And we're, you know, on the phone, getting resources started as soon as we could, even before we had a true diagnosis, mm-hmm. but definitely, uh, went through the kind of the grieving process again. Yeah. 
And uh, whenever I, I focus on, you know, feeling sad, I try to just take that step back and look at the big picture of, of our lives and their functionality, the things they can do, the things we've been able to do and provide and um, their physical abilities. You know, they both have great physical abilities and coordination and love sports and can do things like that within the realm of special Olympics and special teams nice. that can accommodate their anxiety and, you know, craziness sometimes. But uh, definitely felt grief, you know, with the initial diagnosis of both and definitely went through the cycle that you've talked about. Yeah. You know, acceptance. Yeah. You know, it's interesting from my, you know, I've been doing this 27 years now. Right. And so what I encounter, and so if you look at the psychology of this, they, what they, in psychology, they say the best thing to do is like you described Kelly's give families information in the beginning, like when they're in the denial, anger, guilt, bargaining stage, information is what you give. And then you move into a supportive model and then you give into now we're guiding. But when autism happens, like, so that's like, you know, that's death grief, right? In autism, parents have to go through that cycle really fast to acceptance because now we're moving on to treatment, right? So I don't feel like families always process the, that cycle to the, you know, the way psychologists would tell people to. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm a BCBA. I can remember being a young BCBA and blowing this. And by young, I don't mean age, I mean inexperienced. And so I'm coming in, I'm working with families and I can tell they haven't fully gone through this cycle because there's no time, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to get right to the, now we're doing treatment. Mm -hmm. And I've personally found this path that's happened um, and I read it in the literature when I was pre prepping for today's podcast is that there are families sort of go through, like, I see sort of like three branches that families go through and some of it does seem related to culture and socioeconomic status, sadly. But what I see is there's a group of families that, um, start to pamper and baby their child on the spectrum, right? I see that in a lot of Latino families mm -hmm. that they are, they, they feel badly, that they have a child and so they they make sure that child is happy no matter what right and that can result in some of those kids have minimal expectations and not making the kind of progress they potentially could i'm not saying all families do that but that's one path then i see a path that a family that in the beginning um and you both i don't know if you both did this jen i know you did it <laughs> are all in everything like yeah you know, I, I always I joke around and say like balls to the walls like going yeah. in doing everything you can right and then I see a middle path where the parents can't agree on the diagnosis and what to do and it takes a while to get on the right path because the and that's what, unfortunately what happened with my husband he and his wife Melanie's mom didn't agree even that there was a diagnosis and or how to proceed and it resulted in divorce right so there i see those three paths happen a lot as a bcba so i'm trying to navigate those paths with the family and so jen i'll go to you first you were balls to the walls <laughs> and two of you that didn't agree resulted yeah it's like I, I think i was hit two categories <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i'd see that actually sometimes yeah um yeah i think because i like you said um kelly i i was so like even though i knew i was still so floored and bummed out and it was hard I had a baby too you know mm -hmm. like I'm like oh my gosh I remember the day I met Kelly um Birmingham um 
you know, I walked in her office and, you know, I had a, you know, Dylan was a, you know, he was still only four, right? And um, I had a- He's going to be 23 tomorrow, holy shit. Yeah, I had a two-year-old and then I had a pug and I went in her office and like Dylan just like tore her office apart. And I just- Brand new like, room, he destroyed it. I was like, help me, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I knew nothing about autism until you know Dylan got diagnosed um but I just was like you know and I think people get better and I don't think they mean it the way it comes out and again I think Kelly Kelly you and I were the same time frame it seems like even though Dylan's a couple years older but you know at that time like it's like it is like a I don't know life sentence because you know they're watching my kid briefly and they're like your kid's never gonna, you know, like it was more of a list of everything Dylan was never gonna be able to do, you know, and like, so it was just like, oh my gosh, but I'm hardcore just personality wise. And so I was like, I, I see something in Dylan, like I always have, and I've always fought for Dylan, like he, he wasn't verbal for a very long time. He is you know, limitedly verbal. Now he definitely tells you what he wants and doesn't want. Um, but I wasn't going to accept like, you know, he is never going to go to school and he's never going to, you know, the, the huge hit list of what he wasn't going to do. And I was like, well, maybe he's not going to do it in the, you know, traditional way that, you know, society thinks, but I see something in him. I'm not going to just throw in the towel or hide out either. Um, that was a big thing for me in the beginning, having another kid. Um, and I started to just read everything I could, learn everything I could. I was like you too, like, you know, even though it was overwhelming at the time, there weren't like centers where you could mm -hmm. stop shopping. Like I was driving all over the place, all they long to either medical appointments or, you know, services, same thing Dylan's had every, you know, service you can think of learning at the time, what worked, what didn't work. Um, but, and honestly, it totally changed my, like my professional career path too. I was a designer for Disney. Um, and now, um, you know, I ended up, I got, you know, people thought I was really good with people with, autism and behavior so I worked for the school district for many years and um with you know kids with moderate to severe autism and now I've been in a nonprofit world for like 15 years and I actually am a director for Special Olympics so I I'm excited to hear your kids benefit from it but um like even though it sucks and it still sucks <laughs> there's days that I do feel depressed um, I also feel like, like through this journey of autism and all the bad stuff, like it's also actually enriched my life and brought people into my life that have become, you know, close family and friends and we're like a tribe, you know, and um, we have to advocate for our kids because if we don't like we, everybody's going to slip through the cracks. Yeah, for sure. So those paths I described, I see neither of you strike me as families that pamper and baby your children, but I see it often. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe <laughs> Kelly, are you? Talk, talk, talk to me about it. Well, 
I would say I can hear myself, you know, both ways. And I yep. think it comes honestly day to day based on my energy level, you know, and mm -hmm. there's days when I am just gung ho and you're ready to go to the world. And then there's days when it's been rough lately and yeah. we just, I just want them to be happy. You know, the bottom line is we want their lives to be calm, happy, enriched, and to see their faces happy is the number one thing. And I think that comes down to you, when you first reached out to me about this topic about caregiver guilt, you know, like mm -hmm. sometimes you give in and you feel guilty that you were out. Maybe we let the behavioral goal slide a little just because he's happy right now. And it's easy to do because every parent wants to see their child happy and ours that are constantly struggling yeah. and so many days the world just doesn't seem to let let them fit into it very well if they have a moment of joy you're just like to heck with the behavioral goals right now the data I don't care he's so happy right now in fact you know not too long ago uh right after Halloween my youngest who's 11 you know he had gone trick-or-treating he had a little bag of candy you know I'd purposefully given him a small bag so he wouldn't come home with copious amounts of candy <laughs> but we had an evening where he wasn't raging he wasn't you know hyper fixated on things he was pretty calm and he had gotten a Nestle Crunch, a little one out of his bag. And my husband and I are sitting on the couch in the family room and we look over and he has climbed up on the kitchen table, standing on it. And he's touching his Nestle Crunch bar to the ceiling before he eats it. And he's looking at it and he's doing this. It's, it's weird, right? I don't know why. No, it's like, it doesn't phase me. <laughs> and I'm like, and my husband and I literally kind of looked at each other and looked at him and just kind of went back to what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was telling my daughter this story later and she was laughing because she gets it yeah was like, we're in a happy moment it's been so peaceful this evening who cares you know it's weird here that's our motto it's weird here sometimes you know and you know note to self disinfect the table later <laughs> I think sometimes it's pick and choose your battles like 12 or 15 years ago, I might have felt guilty for that moment. Like I need to teach him. This is a teachable moment. We need to work on, you know, learning about hygiene or boundaries. You know, he might do this at somebody else's house. I need to teach him not to. And now, you know, with three years of experience and picking your battles, like, you know what, who cares? It doesn't matter. And, and I am allowed to have these moments of not feeling guilty and just letting him be peaceful, happy, um, you know, during meltdowns, you know, how many times if we're addressing, you know, BCBAs and knowledge and, and awareness, you know, if a parent is describing a meltdown or a rough moment we had, a rough moment, you know, we had one at Chuck E. Cheese yesterday where my youngest was screaming at another child, a toddler, for not throwing the skee ball hard enough, you know, in those <laughs> moments, I'm talking about it and a BCBA says, well, did you take data? Did you count how many times? It's like, no, no, I didn't. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, respect, I respect your job and what yeah. you're trying to do. That's and that not the time. It's data driven, but I survived it. We had screaming meltdowns the rest of the evening. I was depleted. I'm going on four hours of sleep because he's been up for 30 hours. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't take data for you. I'm sorry. You know, and I think most I'm, I'm being a little, you know, ridiculous. Most BCPAs are human beings and they're empathetic. But mm -hmm. I think just the question that comes out sometimes is a slap in the face. Mm -hmm. uh, asking me if I took notes, you know, or sat down later and journaled about it and told you how many times he screamed or how many times he hit, you know, to see if we're working towards that goal, you know, we can figure that out. We can estimate it later if you really need the data, but mm -hmm. don't come at me with questions like that when we're surviving the day. And I think that 
again, I'll pull another little guilt. I think, you know, years ago when I was new to behavior therapy with my oldest son, I would feel guilty, like, oh, I'm, I'm a terrible parent. I'm not, you know, taking the data. You know, <laughs> I was I was terrible at, at paying attention to our, we had a verbal behavior plan in place from my oldest son while my youngest was still an infant. And our therapist was in the house trying to teach me how to show him the cards and get him to say the words, you know, and I was like barely focused. And I, was, I felt like, really, I can't do that. You know, I'm changing diapers. And, and my oldest had regressed and was, you know, having bowel movements in his pants too. And I had actually at this time was caring for both of my aging parents. I was like, are you kidding me? I can't do your verbal behavior plan and take data. No, I just can't. But I had guilt about that. Mm -hmm. Now I think I'm a little more realistic and I understand, you know, boundaries. That's, you know, our new like favorite mental health word now boundaries, but it's so true. And I think special needs parents can, you know, take a lesson in that. Just, just be honest and tell people what you're capable of and if you're not capable of. And the best thing a BCBA could do for, for a parent would say, I understand this is too much to ask. Let's come up with another method. Or maybe you can just, we'll talk about it the next time we meet and we'll just kind of come up with an estimate, you know, of, of how many times this behavior occurred that happened, you know, and just be willing to understand the situation because there are times as a parent, when you're talking to a therapist, whether a speech therapist, occupational behavior therapist, you can tell they're very knowledgeable and you really respect their knowledge and their fresh ideas, but you can tell they don't live it or they wouldn't ask you to sit down at eight o'clock at night and fill out this data sheet. It's like, I know you don't live with it and maybe you're not even a parent to know that. <laughs> mm -hmm. like, like To just be mindful of that would be so helpful and so beneficial and it would really help build rapport with your family and when you get trust from a parent and a parent feels like they understand, she won't ask me to do too much, you know, she's here to help me, not give me more work. She's mm -hmm. not here to give me something else to cope with and absorb and feel bad about if I don't do it, like homework, you know. She's here to help our family, help my child, help me get to where we need to be. You know, I think that would be the best takeaway, you know, I could give for therapists along the, the, the lines of guilt. Just don't add to parent guilt. You know, that one was hard for me to learn, actually. When I look back, I think I always came across as empathetic, mm -hmm. for sure, Jen. And I think I always came across as like, I understand, but I didn't understand. Like, I kind of understood because I was taught through my psychology courses to understand and empathize. But I realized my own life when I started dating my husband now, um, and he basically said, you're the only person I could marry because you get it. Right? And anyone else, he's like, I dated because they, they divorced when his daughters were very young. And by the time Bill and I started, were together, Melanie was, uh, I think, 18 or 19, she's 33 now. Um, but I can remember everything in my mind was a teachable moment. Everything was a teachable moment. And when he wasn't doing it, I we'd fight a lot in the beginning because I'd say, this is a teachable moment. And he taught me to say, like, I don't want to. I just want to enjoy the happiness like you described, Kelly. And that was hard for me to, like, do that. And we actually ended up coming together on a plan that I've shared with a lot of families where there were days where, and it was actually more for me. Like Sunday became, we called it non-conditional day. And it was like, no matter what happened this day, even if like Melanie did something that I thought was wrong and we need to teach or fix, 
it didn't happen because Sunday was just being together day, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I have passed that on to a lot of BCBAs and families. And now years into it, I much more, it's much easier for me to let a teachable moment go. Mm-hmm. And my husband will laugh and say, I can't believe you let that one go right now. And I was like, I'm too tired. (laughs) But I had, you're allowed to break though. I mean, this is like a job, you know, when you become a special needs parent, I mean, parenting is 24 seven, special needs parenting is now 24 seven with a lot of extra tasks involved, a lot Mm -hmm. of extra stressors and it's for life. You're allowed to take a day off of your job. You're encouraged now to take mental health breaks you know, treat it like a job and forgive yourself. It's okay if you decide, I just need the day off today from these behavioral goals or the speech therapy goals, or he doesn't, he's, you know, my youngest has pathological demand avoidance. And there are days when you can't tell him to do anything, even Mm -hmm. the things he wants to do. You know, he wants to go outside and play, but if I say, let's get your socks and shoes on, no, you can't tell me what to do. Five minutes later, he'll do it, but it's his decision. I'm not going to make him take a bath that day. You know what? (laughs) Okay, we'll do that tomorrow. I'm going to pick my battles. I'm allowed to do that for my own mental health, you know, for his health, you know, to not to cause, not to cause him more anxiety to get a task done that isn't pertinent right now or isn't necessary becomes, you know, a quick decision to just let, let that go today. Let's focus on what's what matters. And that's giving ourselves a little break from time to time. And maybe it is like your Sundays. Maybe you just, let's just take the day off and just let things be, let people be, you know, and not everything has to be therapeutic. That is hard. That, that, that decision to get to that point, I think does come with a little bit of experience. Maybe Mm -hmm. some people right off the bat um, when their kid is three, four, newly diagnosed. I think it took me a while to get to that point. And I'm even still evolving to that point Um, with the holidays coming up. It's yep. a big topic for us right now in our house. And my husband and I have laid down some serious boundaries for ourselves because last Christmas was hell. Mm. Holidays are not fun usually. It was hell. <laughs> we had to leave our Christmas Eve family party because we could see our boys escalating. Mm-hmm. This one, this one's tense and you can just see his body language. The other one's wanting to start to take over and talk and talk and talk and things are getting out of control. We had to leave and that vibe and that mood carried over through Christmas day. And because we forced ourselves to go to a family function that we know can sometimes be overwhelming. And so now the new rules are we go separately. Maybe one of us leaves. We handled Thanksgiving this way. He went early with one kid. I came later. We overlapped a little bit mm-hmm. with the ability to leave. So they weren't there together. We actually had a pleasant day. But you know, the, you know, we both have come to the decision that you can tell when your child's in an escalated phase when their their anxiety's been really bad lately, or maybe if they're a pans kid, they're flared right now. Yeah. I'm not gonna put myself through trying to attend a family function, whatever it may be, just because everyone expects me to be there. I'm comfortable now saying we're not going to attend. You know. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to feel like I had to give explanations and explain it and explain it. I don't feel that way anymore. I can just say, this is what's best for our family. We send our love. And what <laughs> I would family and friends could do would just say, okay, well, I hope things are okay. Yeah. Why? Why aren't you there? Why aren't you guys there? Why are you leaving? You know, because that starts to just add insult to injury. Now it's another yeah. thing I kind of feel guilty about. I have to explain it again. I wish that in this moment of duress, they would just give me a hug and say, well, I hope things get better, you know? Um, and I used to feel guilty about saying things like that. Like, I don't want to dump on other people. <laughs> you know, I don't want to dump our stress 
on other people. I just want to quietly escape the situation or not attend in the first place. Um, and I, again, that's a way where you can just, I think, give yourself grace and you're allowed to make decisions you need to make for your own mental health, for your child's calm and peace. And if there's a situation you know your child isn't going to thrive in, you know, Chuck E. Cheese yesterday, my little one was asking, <laughs> oh, and I kind of knew this is going to be bad. Let's try it anyway. It was awful. But from now, you know, for the next, you know, few weeks until he settles a little bit, I'll probably just have to stay in my ground and say, well, no, we'll go another day and he'll, he'll be upset for a while, but he'll, he'll get over it. But I have that mom guilt still sometimes like, oh, he really wants to go. I hate to say no, we'll just tough it out. I don't have to put that on myself. There are some days I'm resilient. I'm like, sure, let's go. I'll tough it out. If he has a meltdown, so what? There's other days I can't. I'm, I'm depleted today. It's been rough lately. I'm going on four hours of sleep like today. And I have the right to say no. And I love how you talked about your Sundays. You know, your Sunday is a day where we're just going to, you know, exist without it being therapeutic and goal-driven. You can decide that spur of the moment, you know, you can wake up on a Tuesday and you had X, Y, Z planned, but it's just not going to happen today. We'll just stay home in the safety of our, <laughs> our space and find other activities that are more doable, less anxiety provoking. And it just, you know, you're always kind of in survival mode and, and it's like, that's okay. You know? So as BCBs, we are not trained about this at all. I hope BCBs listening to this hear it because we're trained to not miss a data opportunity, to keep pushing forward, you know, things like give it up for some joy or, you know, asking a parent to take the data. We're trained like that. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really pull myself back and say to myself, because we're trained to think, and then our guilt comes in because we're like, I'm not helping this family enough. So if I push harder and push harder, mm -hmm. the kids will make the kind of progress I think they can make. And so we live with that guilt of like, am I doing the right thing? And, you know, how do I handle this? And I, you know, I've left a family's home and thought, oh my gosh, I, I gave in too. I let them, you know, give in in this moment and should we have done that? And so I think if BCBAs can, if they're listening to this, can just also like have that honest conversation with caregivers and say like, hey, are we on the same page with this? Or how can I, you know, I loved how Kelly, you said, I'm here to help not give you more work and have those kinds of conversations then I think, and be comfortable, both people being comfortable in the space of saying, I thought I was helping. I'm so sorry. And, you know, caregivers saying, we understand we should be doing this too. And, you know, if we just have these conversations. It builds a therapeutic relationship and we're all working not out of guilt anymore. <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about BCBA guilt. You know, yeah. therapist guilt is not that different from caregiver guilt. Yeah, that's and true. It's okay. You forgive yourself that you <laughs> yeah. recognize the moment where maybe the parent and child are just having a really great day. And you're like, you know what, just here's your goals to focus on maybe tomorrow or the next day. But yeah, you don't have yeah. to build yourself into, you know, walking away from a house feeling like you've done something wrong because you're there to help. And I think most of the time as a caregiver, I'm always so appreciative that our therapists are part of our lives. Mm -hmm. and overall, mm -hmm. in the big picture, they are doing great things for us. It's just, you know, there's been moments of frustration and, you know, with some relationship building though, when you build trust with a caregiver, a parent, they can tell you that they can yeah. say, I'm a little overwhelmed today. I didn't take the data yesterday. I didn't, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And they don't feel ashamed. You know, they're, they're okay. They have that honest trust with you. 
and you're going to definitely over the long run have much better results and reach the goals much better for your child or to be able to set different goals, more achievable goals, because that parent trusts you and they can just open up and be vulnerable. They can yeah. you know, feel, feel brave and be vulnerable um, to just bear their soul and then let you assist yeah. if you meet them halfway, if they feel like they'll meet them halfway. Whew, <laughs> this was gold. Go ahead, Jen. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's spot on, um, especially as the kids get older, right? And you've been doing it a long time. I am now with anybody um, in our lives working with Dylan, like I always like, you know, front load in the very beginning, whether he's going to his adult day program or his service or someone's just coming to take him out and, you know, I'll let him know like, hey, he's been up since four or like, you know, he, he's been sick or, but there's times when like Dylan, you know, trips out or something and like even afterwards or they'll call me and I, I'm, they're like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not there. Or just like, there's times I don't know. And I think like, you're right, Kelly, as a parent, it's like, there are times when you're just like, I have no idea. And <laughs> like, I just need to like, let's like move on. Yep. And, because think about it, we have, you know, 24 hours in the day, like anything can happen. <laughs> It started out great and it can turn on a dime, but I also got to the point where I don't dwell on things or I will go total mental, you know, yep. because, um, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, I'm like going survival mode of like, I'm just trying to make it through the day. And tomorrow's another day and let's start over, right? Yeah, it's okay to feel that. It's like any emotion, feel it, process it, let it happen. It's okay. Yep. It's okay to feel like maybe you just don't have the energy today. It's okay to feel guilty sometimes. So it's always okay to feel sad or angry as part of the mm -hmm. grieving process we talked about. And that, that cycle comes back. Sometimes you have days where you're grieving all over again because something happened that really hit you in the face of all the things they can't do. But if just feel that and then try to refocus throughout your day on things that your child can do and the big picture of all the things you've done for them since the beginning, you know, the therapies, jumping through all the hoops of insurance, mm -hmm. paperwork, and, you know, finding respite or finding CLS or finding, you know, a BCBA, special diets, you know, all the things we do from, you know, rubbing essential oils on their feet at night to help <laughs> them, you know, or melatonin or, you know, warm mm -hmm. baths. Yeah. taking them to special olympics when you know the days you just didn't feel like it today you know mm -hmm. there's so much we do if we just step back and look at that large picture good point where they are and that they're safe they're fed you know their needs are met they're in a safe loving environment and you're always going to advocate for that for them there's so much to be grateful for if you can just kind of focus beyond guilt or sadness and just get back to that place to move forward. And that's, you know, how you're supposed to process any type of grief or stress or disappointment in life is just get your big picture, you know, in front of you. Um, that was perfectly said. Yeah. And I think that, um, I hope BCBAs are listening to this because we need to hear more of this. Thank you both. This was a phenomenal podcast. I took furious notes because I'm going to try to turn this into training information for BCBA. So thank you both for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here and I hope to chat with you again sometime about other things. Sounds great. Thank you both. Thank you.